I realize this is rather fragmented and perhaps makes it difficult for you to uh, hold together in your mind the continuing relationship of book to book. But uh, it's the best we can do since uh, it seems impossible for us to move directly through the Bible this way. And uh, we're determined to finish this. So we have the entire Bible in panoramic viewpoint before us. But you recall that the New Testament falls into various sections, and the uh, epistles deal with certain themes, and that there was a, a last section of the New Testament uh, from beginning with the book of Hebrews on through the book of Jude, and not including, however, Revelation, that deals with the single theme of faith. This was introduced by the book of Hebrews as Romans and Ephesians introduced the other major divisions of the epistles. And the whole uh, thrust of this, these last letters of the New Testament is to explain to us what faith is and how it works, what it looks like, what it does. And each letter makes its unique contribution to that. Now, James is the second book, then, in this section that deals with faith. This letter is of unique and peculiar significance to us because it comes from the one who knew more about the Lord Jesus than any other human being alive, at least as far as the record that is passed on to us is concerned. It was from James, the brother of our Lord who was raised in the same home in Nazareth, grew up with the Lord Jesus, saw him through all those silent years that the record gives no account of, and uh, joined with his other three brothers, whose names are given to us in the Gospels, in opposition to the Lord Jesus during the early days of his ministry, and was finally converted by the resurrection of the Lord. And remember that the Apostle Paul, it is, who tells us that after the resurrection, the Lord appeared to James. Uh, Many of us would give an awful lot to know what happened during that time. When this one who had looked upon Jesus as nothing more than his brother, who had grave doubts that he was indeed the Son of God, as he claimed, who once regarded him as a madman, and came with his mother and his brothers to have him locked up, or at least to go home with him, get him out of the public view, but who finally, by the resurrection, was convinced that here indeed was God manifest in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And James, too, saw his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so he begins his letter with James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great testimony, isn't it, to the deity of Jesus, that this one who was his half-brother by nature should address him in this way, our Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout this letter, there breathes a reverence and a respect for the person of the Lord that is... uh, unequaled anywhere else in the New Testament. There has been considerable difficulty or controversy as to whether this James uh, was the one who wrote the letter. But I think if you look carefully into the background of this letter, you can see that 
it's almost certain that it must be James, the Lord's brother, who is the one who pens this letter. He was the leader of the church in the early days after the resurrection and became the acknowledged leader of the church in Jerusalem and is regarded was regarded by all with reverence and respect, even by the Jews, so, so that he gained the title James the Just One. And uh, tradition tells us, supported by one of the great church fathers, Eusebius, who was a great historian, that James was finally martyred for his faith by being taken up to the pinnacle of the temple. Most uh, When I grew up, I used to think of the pinnacle of the temple as the height, the, the tall part of the gable. I thought of the temple as having a gable, and up on the highest part of the roof would be the pinnacle. But um, I learned later that that was not the case. The pinnacle of the temple was the point of the wall around the temple that jutted out over the Kidron Valley. And there's a drop of about a hundred feet or more from the height of that wall, the point where the wall turns the corner, that goes straight down into the Kidron Valley. I stood on that wall a little bit over a year ago, stood on the pinnacle of the temple and looked down a hundred feet or more into the Kidron Valley and uh, was uh, interested to observe that this was the place where the devil took Jesus and, uh, and tempted him to jump off. Remember, the pinnacle of the temple. And Eusebius tells us that this was the place where James the Just, the brother of our Lord, was taken in about the year 66 A.D., and that he was pushed off this, this pinnacle to his death by the Jews, who became angered with him for his Christian testimony. And thus he became a martyr of, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, the story, as Eusebius gives us, said that he not only, that he was pushed off, but that the fall did not kill him, and that he managed to uh, stumble to his knees and began to pray for his murderers. And so they finished the job by stoning him to death. Thus he joined the band of martyrs. Now, it's very evident that this letter was written during the early part of the church's life. It comes out of that period that's reflected in the book of Acts. And therefore, it may be the earliest Christian document that we have. It may even have been written before the Gospels of Mark or Matthew. And this may represent, therefore, the very earliest document and record of, of the church's life. You can't read this letter of James without being struck by the fact of its of its likeness to the teachings of Jesus. In fact, if you take the Sermon on the Mount and the letter of James and lay them side by side, you'll see more than a dozen exact parallels. So it is quite uh, evident that this man, James, listened to the Lord Jesus and heard these messages, even though perhaps he struggled with them at the time. But there are many, many parallels here. Also, this letter, above every other letter in the New Testament, is characterized, like the, like the teaching of the Lord himself, with references to figures of speech taken from nature. You have the waves of the sea, the animal kingdom, the forest, the fish, and uh, uh, various figures of speech, all drawn from nature, just as the Lord Jesus used to do himself. 
As I've suggested now, the theme of this letter is faith. Because faith is the way we receive anything from God. If you don't have faith, you'll receive nothing from God. Without faith, the book of Hebrews told us, it is impossible to please God. And faith, therefore, is the channel by which all God's blessing come to us. And without faith, you can only, all all that you do is sin. Whatsoever is not of faith, says the Apostle Paul, is sin. So all activity that does not stem or derive from faith is sinful activity. That's why faith is important. If you're not acting out of what you believe, then what you're doing is distasteful and disgusting to God, even though it may be highly applauded by everyone around. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, in this letter, then, the the Apostle James is telling us uh, several things about faith. In chapter 1, you have a wonderful answer to the question, what makes faith grow? Jesus, you know, said it doesn't take very much faith to start. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, just a little bit of it, just enough to get you to act, even though you're filled with doubts in the doing of it, that's enough. That'll move mountains, he says. That'll accomplish great things. Because faith has a very remarkable quality. Two qualities, in fact, as Jesus told it in that parable. It is like a seed, it can grow, and it's like a mustard seed. It has the quality of stirring up others to grow, too. It's, it's like mustard, it uh, creates a, a disturbance and uh, arouses activity around it. And that's what faith is. Now, here James tells us what makes faith grow. And there are two things in chapter 1 that make faith grow. First, trials. Trials. And this is a wonderful chapter for those who are facing trials. He says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let that steadfastness or patience have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you need trials. And then he goes on, as you know, to describe how to take trials. Accept them, he says, is from God. And if you lack wisdom about it, well, ask God about it, and he'll, he'll explain it to you, what's going on. But you have to ask in faith. You have to expect him to do this. And if you're poor, well, don't let that bother you. That's a trial, but it's a trial that can lead to blessing. And blessed is the man who endures trial. Or when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. And you need trials in your life. I was thinking about this this afternoon, about trials, and was mentally contrasting the way these early Christians faced trials and the way we do. I was thinking of the Apostle Paul. You remember that record in Second Corinthians when he tells us five times I was beaten with the forty stripes Less one. Thirty-nine stripes. On five occasions, he was bound at a stake. And they took that uh, that leather whip 
that the Jews used, and beat him 39 times across his back for five different times. So that when he wrote to the Galatians, he said, I bear in my back, in my body, the brand marks of the Lord Jesus. Three times I was stoned, I was beaten with rods. They took the uh, wooden rods and beat him with that. And once, he says, I was stoned. And what was his attitude in all this? Well, the wonderful thing about the these early Christians is that we read almost consistently that when they went through trials, they rejoiced. They counted themselves fortunate to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, you... you uh, you uh, took joyfully the spoiling of your possessions because you knew you had a better city in heaven. And uh, there was this reaction of joy and gladness that they were counted worthy to go through the trial. And I couldn't help but contrast that with with us. We get all we get all unhappy and shook up over finding crabgrass in the lawn, don't we? <laughs> or if we Hear that our mother-in-law is coming for a visit. It almost makes us ready to commit suicide. We're all disturbed over these little things. man was telling me not long ago about a woman who came down to see him. A, a pastor told me this, and, and his wife, the, she wanted a divorce from her husband. She was so upset. And when he got to the heart of the matter, it was that she had fixed a special luncheon for him and had uh, done all kinds of special extra work expecting him to come home. And then he called up just the last minute and said he couldn't come home. She was furious. She wanted a divorce. <laughs> now, what kind of a attitude in trial is that? See, God sends trials, says the Scriptures to us, because we need them. They teach us lessons which we could never learn otherwise. And if we didn't have them, we'd be weak, spidly, um, incomplete Christians, unable to take the great responsibilities that will be placed upon us in the day when we're with the Lord, when we enter into his kingdom, into the fullness of service that's provided for us. So we need that. And second, the instrument that makes faith grow is the word. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a doer, of, a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks into the mirror, takes a fleeting glance, and then goes away and forgets everything about that he saw. But he says, look into this perfect law of liberty and do it. And he reminds us that this must be expressed then in Acts. It's the Word of God that makes our faith grow. Faith comes by hearing, says the Apostle Paul, and hearing by the Word of God. And I've never seen anybody grow strong in faith that neglected the reading of the Bible. There's a word of, of uh, exhortation to you, especially you young people. How can we expect to know the great thoughts of God, the deep things of God, these underlying secrets of life, unless we spend time with the book that reveals them. There's no other source that you can get them from. No university in the land even moves at all in this realm of, of unveiling 
the secrets of life, but the book that you hold in your hand. So, let your faith grow by, in, by rejoicing in trial and by understanding the word. Now, in chapters 2 and 3, James answers for us the question, how is faith recognized? How is it made visible? How do you see that you have faith or that someone else has faith? And he has three things that he suggests here that uh, are the indication of faith. First, uh, it must be without partiality or prejudice. How can, uh, if a man is prejudiced against another, prejudiced because of the color of his skin or the state of his bank account, and he uh, treats him as though he were unimportant, just simply because he isn't rich or wealthy, then obviously he has no faith, says James. If a poor man comes into a church here and you say to him, well, you go sit over there in the corner. But when the wealthy man comes in, you bow and take him down to the front and see that he has a comfortable pew and turn to the uh, place in the hymn book and uh, fawn over him like that. He says, don't link that with faith in Jesus Christ. Because the one is canceling out the other. You can't manifest faith that way. Faith destroys prejudice. At Fresno State campus uh, last week, I was privileged to speak on this subject, the cause of racial violence. And I pointed out the fact that the major cause of the Racial conflict that we have in our land today is the church of Jesus Christ. Had the church been what it ought to have been, had Christians in South and North alike actually received uh, Negroes and others on the basis of brothers in Christ Jesus, this whole conflict would never have arisen, would long since have been dis have disappeared. Because the church controls the attitudes of society, not by legislation, not by uh, propaganda, but by simply being what it ought to be. And when the church fails, society fails. And thus prejudice got a deep root in our social life. Second, he says, faith is made visible by actual deeds of mercy. James is so eminently practical. He says, supposing someone shows up at your door, knocks on the door and says to you, I don't have anything to eat. We're starving over at our house. And you say, well, brother, I feel for you. Let's say a prayer together. And you pray for him and say, well, now go your way. Every, the Lord will work everything out. He says, you hypocrite. You call that faith. Why, that's not faith. You don't have any faith at all. If your faith does not lead you to share with your destitute brother, there's something desperately wrong with it. You don't have faith at all. Because the faith of Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, means that you actually have the life of the Lord Jesus. And can you imagine the Lord Jesus treating anybody that way, that had needs? Why, he'd give him the coat off his back. Uh, he'd do anything. He, he'd in order to supply the lack and the need of that individual. 
And can Christian compassion therefore shut its heart to the needs of those around, both on an emotional or a physical level? So, how practical James is in this respect. If you want your faith to be seen and recognized, it must manifest itself in actual deeds. This is why the Lord Jesus said that in the judgment, the question will be asked, uh, the, the proposition will be put this way, I was hungry and thirsty and in prison and destitute and in need, and you did nothing about it. And then the third thing is a controlled tongue. And James devotes a whole chapter to that, chapter 3. And what a, what a vivid series of figures he uses to tell us what the tongue is like. Set on fire, he says, of hell. And uh, you, can tra- you can tame every beast and bird and reptile and so on. But no man by himself can control his tongue. The tongue, he says, is the member of our body most uh, closely linked to our real nature. It shows what is motivating us. Out of the heart the mouth speaketh, says another scripture. And therefore, what you say is very determinative of what you are. It reveals what you are. And so the Apostle James makes very clear here that uh, the only way you can, you can really claim to be a Christian and have exercised faith in Jesus Christ is that it's doing something to your tongue. It's reducing its sharpness and stopping its caustic bitterness and turning it off. And keeping it from lashing out and criticizing and reproving in sharpness. Not that there isn't a place for reproof among Christians. But not in this sharp, caustic, bitter, uncensored way. Then in chapters 4 and most of chapter 5, he answers the question, What happens when faith fails? What if you don't exercise faith? What if you are a Christian, but you don't uh, live by that? You don't live by faith, believing continually that what the Lord Jesus has said and done. Well, what happened? First, wars and fightings among you. And the direct cause is a lack of prayer. Prayer is an example of faith. Prayer is the most perfect expression of faith, because prayer is uh, a... A manifestation of dependence upon God. And Paul and James traces this, uh, this whole matter of wars and fightings and arguments among us and uh, disagreements and so on to a lack of prayer. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you kill. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. That's the trouble. We fight with each other because we don't ask God for anything. We don't take from him the nature of love and compassion that he offers us. We don't choose to receive from him that sweetness of tongue that will give a soft answer back. But we'd rather lash out at one another 
and fight with one another. And so, it's a direct result, you see, of the lack of faith that wars and fightings emerge. And then, the love of the world will come in. Uh, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, he says? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And if you stop believing what the scriptures say, you'll find yourself being drawn to the lies and the alluring illusions of the world around. You'll start thinking that things matter and that uh, materialism is the all-important thing and getting the Keeping up with the Joneses is the most important part of your life. Your money will start going in that direction. Your time and thoughts will be invested in those things. And soon you find yourself drifting off into the state of concern only for this life, for the uh, acceptance of others, your peer groups, whatever they may be, and living thus in a perfectly worldly way, conformed to the world. That's a direct result, you see, of lack of faith. And then the next result will be critical judgments. We've already seen something of this, but he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brethren. He that speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. That is, he's forgotten that we're to sit under the judgment of the word of God. And the man who criticizes another has removed himself above the word of God and says that he's the judge. Instead of letting the word judge him, he becomes the judge of someone else. And you see again, James traces this to lack of faith. Then the next one is presumptuous assurance. Uh, Come now, he says, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and get gain. Why, he said, don't you know that... uh, You have no hope or assurance of tomorrow at all, that your life is like a breath of air that's gone like that. And you ought to recognize that only God can permit plans for the future like that and carry them out. And recognize that. And don't get to thinking that you own all of life. A young student at Fresno State came to me this last week at breakfast, and he said, I don't need this Christianity. He said, I've got all that it takes to live life. He said, I I don't need God. I said, that's strange. Uh, Tell me, I said, are you running your diaphragm right at this moment? He said, what do you mean? Well, I said, your diaphragm is operating. I said, did you, are you the one that's operating it? Have you commanded it to work? Well, no, he says, it takes care of itself. No, I said, it doesn't. (laughs) Nothing takes care of itself, but someone's running it. Have you ever thought how much of your life, I said, that you, your body's activities operate quite apart from your will, and you're dependent on them for just the very next moment? He said, no, I hadn't thought of that. (laughs) Well, I said, perhaps that would help you if you'd think about that a little bit. And then I told him the story of my friend Jim Rayburn, some of you have heard me tell this before, who was back in Washington, D.C. during World War II and wanted to go by plane from Washington to New York. And it was back in the days when you needed a priority for air travel. 
And he went into the ticket office and said to the girl, I want to get a ticket for Washington, for New York. She said, well, do you have a priority? He said, well, I didn't know you needed one. He said, how do you get it? And she said, well, if you work for the government or for the airline, I could give you one. And he said, well, I don't work for either one of them. But he said, I'll tell you who I do work for. I work for the one who owns the air that your airline flies its planes through. (laughs) And she looked at him rather strangely and said, well, I don't think that's good enough to get you a priority. (laughs) He leaned over and in his characteristic way, he said, "Uh, did you ever think what would happen if my boss shut off your air for 10 minutes? (laughs) She said, "Uh, Just a minute, I'll see what I can do. (laughs) And in a moment, she was back and gave him the priority. She said, you can go right aboard. (laughs) You can't get much higher authority than that. Well, the final thing that James brings in this is the fraud and neglect that comes because of forgetfulness of faith. Come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is rusted, so on. The wages of the laborers who mold your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. What makes a Christian get uh, over-sharp in business practices? What makes him think he can cheat on his income tax? What makes him uh, uh, pull a shady deal in business? Line up with a partner who perhaps is willing to slice things pretty thin at times. What makes a Christian do that? He forgets. He doesn't believe anymore the word of God. He forgets as a judge watching, listening, hearing everything, weighing all that he does. He forgets that there's coming, that the Lord Jesus is coming again, and that all that men have done in secret will be shouted from the housetops. So James says, that's what happens when you forget faith. You begin to cheat and, and defraud and to neglect, and to take advantage of others. And so he goes on to encourage those who are thus defrauded to be patient and wait for the coming of the Lord. The judge is at the door, he says. And then in the final section, verses five, uh, chapter 5, verses 12 through 20, it's a wonderful picture of what early Christian fellowship involved. It's a... Uh, It involved four things this chapter brings out. First, honesty. Honesty in word. Integrity, perhaps, is the better term. Above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. Be dependable. Be trustworthy. That's one of the characteristics that makes for fellowship among people, is that they can count on you. This is one of the part of the fruit of the Spirit, to be trustworthy. Then the second was confession. Talk to one another about your problems, he says. Pray for one another. Confess your faults to one another. 
Bear one another's burdens. Open up your hearts. Take down your facades and your fences. Come out from behind your masks. Quit trying to pretend to be something that you're not. But be what you are. And immediately the the grace of the God of truth, who loves truth, will begin to flow through that group. And uh, it will develop a fellowship that will make the world stand around with their nose pressed to the glass trying to get in. I'm convinced this is the missing element in society today. We have a lot of Christians who are just excluded in isolation, living in little isolation cells from one another. They don't want to let anybody in at all. Let nobody see what they're like at all. Never admit to failure. Never talk about any pressing problems. Always screw on a smile when they get together. You ask them, how are things going? Oh, great, great. But they're not great at all. And you see, this kind of this kind of uh, hypocrisy must be must end, and uh, this is what James exhorts to. Then he says, "God will be in your midst if you take down all these fences and be open and honest with one another." And then prayer is a mighty factor in this. Pray for one another, and he reminds us of Elijah, and he says this verse that's been such a help to me. Remember, he says, the uh, Effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man releases great power. I don't think we Christians have any idea of the power that's committed to us in the ministry of prayer. Power to control the effect of daily life and to quiet dissension and riot and tumult so that, as Paul put it in Timothy, we can live quiet and peaceable lives. We ought to be praying about these things. And finally, a concern for each other is evident, is to be evident. My brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What a wonderful glimpse this is into the life of the early church. No wonder these Christians turned the city of Jerusalem upside down. And under the leadership of this man, James, the church grew to 4,000, then 5,000, and more members in that city, until there was a vast multitude of them that were just simply setting the city on its ear and awakened a a tide of resistance that had to move out finally and crush this thing, lest it uh, turn the whole earth upside down. That's what God can do when we live as the book of James suggests.